Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Is it time to make the jump from cooking with gas to going electric? I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Environmentalists and consumer advocates alike are pushing for an ordinance that would rule out the use of natural gas in most new buildings. This comes after a member of the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission made headlines for suggesting a possible ban on gas stoves. And ever since, the gas versus electric stove debate has been heating up. To get into the science behind this debate, we are talking to Brent Stevens, professor and department chair in the Civil Architectural and Environmental Engineering Department at Illinois Tech, researching indoor energy and air quality. We're also speaking with Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert. She runs Loyola University Chicago's Baumart Center for Social Enterprise and Responsibility. Karen, give us the backstory here. Why are gas stoves being talked about so much right now? Well, you're absolutely right. They are being talked about, and it really started, as you said, when the Consumer Product Safety Commission mentioned that that they were planning some upcoming possible regulations, which is in their plan, but then they used language that implied a potential ban, and that set off the firestorm. Um, This would be the first ever safety regulations about gas stoves, but they've since walked back if this is about a ban. And one key thing here is anything that they do would be about new stoves that would come on the market in a period of time after public comment. So none of this, from their standpoint, is actually even about the stove that's currently in a home if you have one. So give us a bit more of that back and forth. It's been really interesting uh, to see this as people have jumped into a political discussion about taking stoves from people's homes. What this really is, it's a, a government agency that is charged with looking at products, and it's a particular link to health and really to safety. And uh, they are looking for comments that could start later this year. There would be an opportunity for everyone, public, uh, the public, organizations, businesses, to provide commentary to help them shape what might be regulations about future stoves that would be available in the market. So there's a time horizon here that we'd all be going through. Yeah. Well, let's be clear. Despite this, there are currently no federal bans on gas stoves, right? There are some on the state level. You're right. There are no federal bans on gas stoves. And what you do have is you've had some cities have essentially bans on gas hookups in new construction of buildings. And so that did start a few years ago. And you've seen that in a couple of different places. And so there absolutely has been some movement that is looking toward homes that would not have gas stoves. But that is not a federal ban. This has been new construction focused, and it's been focused in different parts of the country, not federally. Here in Chicago, uh, an ordinance requires new buildings to be electric ready, right? Some activists are saying that doesn't go far enough. And that's this exact conversation. So there was a new approach to new construction in Chicago. It's just from 2022. And it is, as you said, it's electric ready. So it requires the wiring, in a sense, that that be in your home so that you in the future might have an option if you wanted to bring in a gas stove, if you wanted to bring in solar panels, or if you wanted to bring in a heat pump. Um, but there's been uh, there was a press conference just recently, and uh, the questions are being raised about could the city go farther? Could the city essentially eliminate 
gas stoves and gas appliances in homes. Um, and there really there is no EPA regulation on indoor air quality. So this is not a space that someone else is really regulating, despite the fact that we all spend 90% of our time inside. So there was a there's a, a big focus with, with advocates and leaders locally looking at it from a health standpoint, but also linking it to the broader climate conversation about gas uh, and the broader equity and fairness and cost standpoint when you're thinking about infrastructure to bring in both gas and electricity into our homes. Well, Brent, let's bring you in here because we've been talking about gas stoves, but it's not the only place that we see gas in our homes, right? Where right. else? Right. So gas water heating is also actually quite a, bit, a, a much larger user of gas overall, right? We use our stoves intermittently, but we use gas water heating, you know, uh, quite frequently. So I've seen numbers like 20 to 1, we use more more gas for water heating than for cooking. I see. Uh, in, in terms of energy use, right? Well, let's get into some of these uh, serious health concerns that the debate has brought up, Brent. Explain the difference, first of all, between indoor and outdoor pollution, and how can stoves create indoor pollution? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so this is good timing. I'm, I'm teaching a class on indoor air quality um, this semester, so it's great timing. That was just yesterday afternoon. So, you know, we spend almost 90% of our time indoors on average. We're exposed to a range of pollutants that come from both indoor and outdoor sources. Uh, this sort of unfortunate story is that cooking, no matter how you cook, is a is a large source of a number of pollutants. Um, the health effects associated with that are sometimes hard to tease out, um, but we know a lot about some of the pollutants that are emitted. So no matter what you cook on, you're emitting um, particulate matter. And what's what we regulate outdoors and what we think is important indoors is fine particulate matter. That's small particles that can get deep into your respiratory system. There's a bunch of other things that are emitted, too, from cooking and other sources. Right. Uh, what's also important to know about indoor air um, is that that's where a lot of our exposure to a lot of outdoor air actually occurs. Because we spend so much time indoors and because outdoor pollutants come indoors, what you breathe inside is kind of this slew or mix of what's emitted inside and what came in from outdoors. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, I mean, pollutants, no matter how you're cooking, but uh, scientists, they have been studying the health concerns from gas stoves for decades. Give us some more detail on what they've found. Yeah. And so the literature dates back uh, at least a couple of decades um, uh, one for like what pollutants are emitted by what food types, how you cook them. Uh, burning emits more than than not burning, right? Like uh, you know, frying emits more particles than than not frying, and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, and then also looking at the fuels and what those studies initially showed and continue to show is you do get a few types of pollutants like NO two nitrogen dioxide, which is really driving a lot of the respiratory and asthma concerns of late. Uh, those come from Combustion, right? That comes from combustion of, of gas indoors. Yeah, childhood asthma is a big concern. Exactly, exactly. And even and so there's also really, really tiny ultrafine particles that are emitted from the combustion of gas um, through stoves and other sources. Those aren't necessarily there in electric cooking, right? And so NO2 has really driven a lot of this. Even the epidemiology literature then kind of moving forward just in the last 10 years or so, um, the health literature has found literally having a gas stove in your home is associated with a higher increased risk of uh, childhood asthma. Mm. And that could mean a lot of things. When you boil it down and look for like what pollutants are causing the problem, NO2 stands out as likely, but there may be other things that are there too and other sources uh, uh, of pollutants from other gas combustion and so forth. But that's what a lot of this is driven on. The latest analysis, right, 12.7%. Um, plus or minus, you know, 6% or whatever. Yeah. How do heart estimate. conditions figure into this? 
Yeah, so uh, heart conditions are more associated with the particle exposure. Okay. So car- the cardiorespiratory stuff, the cardio cardio stuff is is really with um, what we know is with with particles, um, and so the the big picture is that the fuel matters, but also the act of cooking matters and what you're cooking also matters. So there's a few things you can do to kind of tackle those, as I'm sure we'll get into. So, Karen, I'm curious, what does the EPA say about this? Well, the larger question here is the EPA doesn't officially regulate indoor air quality. <clears throat> and so as, as we've been talking about the, the initial uh, coverage that started, it was really the Consumer Product Safety Commission. And so if we, if we take that step back and we look at, you know, where's the federal government in this, this is a very interesting spot where there's really not a lot of coverage. Uh, there's a lot of in, in air quality studies, but they're typically outside. You know, when we have conversations about, uh, for example, switching from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles, there's a lot of information about outdoor air quality. Well, we're talking about combustion again. It's in your home and there's much less. Mm-hmm. And so this is a space where uh, that's what some of the pressure points are. Is there isn't a lot of fabulous data, which is why when studies come out, like this one that you just mentioned that came out, I think in December with the 12.7% increase in childhood asthma, and it gets a lot of attention because there's not a huge body of extraordinary research that people are putting this in terms of con- to contextualize it. And so now we have a very specific piece of information that feeds on what people have been thinking about as you look at this idea of combustion. Combustion outside is bad. Well, this is now combustion in our homes, and we're thinking about it in new ways with new data. Well, to that end, Brent, I mean, given what you shared with us, what, what Karen's talking about, the health concerns of gas in the home, why do you think that there haven't been regulations of gas thus far? It, it's. I think it's the same for... Um, a lot of other indoor pollutants. We really only regulate indoor air at like the manufacturer stage, right? So when you buy a piece of furniture, it may say, you know, this is low emitting or something like that. Or there's certain things, if you've ever seen the sticker on on products that say uh, known to cause cancer in the state of California. Really? That doesn't make any sense. It's because California has stricter regulations on those sort of things. And so um, I think the other the other piece too is that you know, a lot of this has really come out of, like, people concerned about climate and getting fossil fuels out of buildings and then looking for non-energy benefits, meaning since 40 percent or whatever, the population doesn't care about climate change, what else is out there? And then that's kind of really just a lot more people have turned their attention even in the last three to four years on the little bit of literature out there on, on stoves and cooking and so forth. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, We're talking about the gas stove versus electric stove debate and the health and climate concerns around them with Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert and Brent Stevens, who studies indoor air quality. So, Karen, we've discussed uh, health concerns for folks, but there's also the environmental issue at stake, right? Are gas stoves harmful for the planet? The question is the fuel. And so using methane and using natural gas is using a fossil fuel. It's less of a greenhouse gas emitter than using coal or other things. But that's, as Brent was saying, that's actually part of this larger story, as as there are climate conversations about how do we decarbonize our economy and how do we decarbonize buildings, which is essentially that's the second largest source of emissions nationally. It's the largest actually in a a big city like Chicago. Uh, How do you decarbonize that? Well, you have to look at the different ways carbon is used on an operating basis and then on a construction basis too. But from an operating basis, that's really heating, cooling, uh, and then using the appliances and things in your home. So natural gas is used right now in Chicago. It's, it's a large source for air heating. It's a large source for uh, water heating. It's a, it's a significant source for cooking. Cooking is smaller than those other two. 
but if we look at greenhouse gas emissions and you try to think about the decarbonization question, methane's up there and methane is actually more potent a greenhouse gas uh, driver than carbon. It has much higher potency, particularly in the first years. So if you look over 100 years, it's 25 more, 25 times more potent. If you shorten that time horizon, it's even higher because it doesn't mm. last as long. So it's a very specific near-term focus if we're trying to decarbonize. Is it uh, a good rule of thumb to think if something's harmful for human health, it, it must also be bad for animals and, and plants or vice versa? I, I, that's a very nice shorthand. Um, there's also the the way to think about it of you know what's what's bad for humans right now. Uh, if something's bad for the environment, it's probably going to be bad for humans down the road also. So bad air quality if that's impacting us right now. It's actually a, a driver of uh, uh, of mortality globally when we think about air quality. And uh, a lot of that study again is about out- outdoor air quality. You know, but then we think about broader pollution and impacting the ecosystem. That has long term impacts on the health of our food supply. Mm-hmm. And you know, as we think about carbon, that has long term implications for the weather. Uh, so yes, there are. It's a shorthand way to think about. It. If it's not good for us, it's probably not good for the planet. If it's not good for the planet, ultimately, it's not going to be great for us either. Methane's in that story. And, you know, we hear a lot about um, electrifying homes and businesses. That being a major way to reduce our reliance on on fossil fuels and our carbon emissions. So how important would you say it is to move away from gas stoves in that process? Gas stoves are disproportionately important because they're the one time in a home where you might experience the actual, the gas. Like it's part of the experience of cooking. It's typically not part of the experience of heating your home. You just want your home to hit the right temperature. It doesn't really matter in your experience if it's gas or electric as long as it's a good quality heat and it turns on when you want and lasts as long as you want. So one of the reasons that that I think there's such a focus on the gas stove is if People don't need that gas stove, and they have a different way to cook and experience uh, food and family. That's the one time you see the gas. So once that goes away, there's less of a, a personal tie to the gas that's used elsewhere. So I think it's it's disproportionately important because of that connection to the experience and, and gas being a part of cooking, where it's really not a part of the others. But from a carbon standpoint, it's much lower. It's really about air heating. Like, how do you heat, cool, how do you heat your space? That's number one. Uh, and then how do you heat your water? Yeah. So if you're really driving carbon, you'd probably start there. So, Brent, uh, unlike restaurants that are required to have um, high-grade hoods and, and ventilation, many home kitchens, they rely on the microwave fans or, or hoods that don't release the air outside, right? So why is ventilation so important? How can people get better ventilation? Right. I'm, I'm glad, really glad you brought that up because it's actionable things that people can do. Uh, and you're exactly right. So regardless of what fuel source you're using, right there in front of the source when you're cooking, yeah. and the food that you're cooking is giving off pollutants too, the best thing you can do is operate a range hood that vents to the outside. The unfortunate thing is that many are built into a microwave and recirculate. And if you're the right height, it'll just blow that right back into your face, right? Nice. Um, very nice. Yeah. So that's kind of priority, I think, number one. Um there's also some evidence in the literature that you can operate air cleaners kind of in the space. Mm-hmm. HEPA with especially activated carbon to capture the gases like NO2. Those can have an impact. Uh, and, of course, stove changeouts can help, but you'll still need to copy, uh, combine a stove changeout if you eventually move to induction, you know, electric induction. You still want to make sure your range hood is good. On top of that, not only do you want to ensure that it vents to the outside, which can be a you know a little bit of an invasive construction if you have to do that, or really hard to get if you're a renter. Yeah. There's also unfortunately like huge variability in how effective different range hoods are. You mentioned the amount the the big commercial hoods. You can get you know 
units that have really high flow rates, that have really big areas for capture, that are super effective, that suck up almost everything. And then you can get, unfortunately, the exact opposite and have really low efficiency. So even if it vents to the outside, it might not be moving enough air to really make a big impact. So how concerned, I'm thinking of the folks listening, how concerned should people be if they have gas in their home? What do you recommend they do? Um, My take is both for climate and for air quality, think about replacing it with an induction eventually. Uh, Wirecutter did a nice piece on this, which sort of like, hey, everybody, don't immediately think that you need to swap this out. There's other things you should focus on for indoor air. And as Karen mentioned, for climate, there's other things you can focus on. But in the long run, if you want to get fossil fuels out of buildings, it's kind of the the way to go. And don't get bogged down in the like electric versus gas debate because I think half of people are thinking about electric, your parents' electric and yeah. half of people are thinking about induction, like kind of the wave of the future, right? And you those are so different in terms of the experience. And we're going to talk about that <laughs> a little bit later in, in, in the program. But uh, leave us with this. What, what are you keeping your eye on, Brent, in this debate? You know, I, I, I sort of, as someone who studied indoor air for a long time and have had asked me, have people ask me, uh, why do you study indoor air? I hope that that's become more apparent and people can um, find the information they need and seek actionable, uh, you know, actions that they can take. That is Brent Stevens, professor and department chair in the Department of Civil, Architectural, and Environmental Engineering at Illinois Tech. And Karen Weigert, Reset Sustainability contributor, will stay with us. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're going to reheat that last conversation. All right. But seriously, guys, we will keep the stove discussion cooking with our next guest. We'll get an introduction to induction stoves. Joining us is Kaya Himmelman. She is a reporter for the news outlet Grid and did her own deep dive on induction stoves. Hi, Kaya. Welcome to Reset. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Kaya, when we talk about electric stoves, we often think about the uh, electric coil stove or that electric flat top. Mm-hmm. But those aren't the only kinds, right? There's also induction. Right. right. Tell so- us about how those work. Yeah, so um, induction stoves use a magnetic field to create heat. Um, So more specifically, they use a copper coil to create a magnetic field, which excites molecules in the cookware, causing it to heat. Um, Something to note about induction cooking is that the magnetic field on its own can't actually create heat. It needs that induction-compatible pot or pan to interact with the magnetic field. So the heat happens in the pan itself and not in the cooking unit. I see. When did induction stoves hit the market? Yeah, so the first patents for induction cooking were granted in the early 1900s. Um, And then in the 1950s, there was a prototype model, which was never mass produced. Um, So it wasn't until the 70s that it was really introduced onto the market. Um, And at the time, it cost about $1,500, which was very expensive. Um, So it didn't really catch on. It wasn't until like the early 2000s that we kind of, uh, it caught steam a little bit. So what are some benefits, would you say, of induction cooking? Why do folks like it? Yeah, so uh, a couple of reasons. I think safety is is a huge one. Um, you know, there's, there's no open flame, so there's little risk of things catching fire. Um, and then, of course, they, they don't emit any dangerous greenhouse gases. Um, there's no danger of gas leaks. That's another safety component. And then they're, they're quite quick. I think that's a misconception people have about induction cooking. So, you know, you can actually boil water twice as fast. Um, and there's more controls. Some of these models, you can actually select a specific temperature. Um, 
so and that way chefs chefs like it yeah well karen these are more expensive up front right they can't. i mean kaya had me at the boiling water twice yeah, as fast exactly. <laughs> the boiler twice as fast uh absolutely they are they are right now a little bit more expensive but if if you look at the the range of prices of, uh, of yeah. a range yeah like how do they uh, compare to a gas or, or non-induction yeah. electric stove they're a, a little bit more expensive, but the ranges overlap, meaning a, a mid-range gas stove is probably about what your starter price would be for induction. So the prices aren't wildly different, but there's certainly a bit of a premium now. And, and, and we anticipate that that'll come down. You've got a combination of, of rebates and an economy that is starting to shift this way. But right now, there is a slightly higher price point, and uh, there are all of these benefits. It's been interesting to see why people are getting really interested in it right now. Yeah. Um, do they require rewiring your home? They can, depending on what you already have there. And so that can be part of the process, depending on what you're replacing in your kitchen right now. So that can be a step, definitely something to look for. The Inflation Reduction Act provides money for, for people to make this switch. How can folks get that money? Is it available now? So the Inflation Reduction Act is absolutely a game changer here, and the money is going to come through the state. So this year is definitely when some of that money should really be available, and uh, that's really the first time the federal government has kind of done rebates for electric appliances. So this is this is a game changer, and it's it's for a decade. So this year there will be significant rebates. It could be up to eight hundred and forty dollars really for for uh, an induction stove. And uh, there actually are some rebates right now that are already available through some of the programs that are administered by ComEd. So if you do need to replace right now, definitely look. Uh, But as you think about the next few years, A, there are going to be rebates. B, as more and more people buy, the the price premium we were just talking about will probably start to go down. That's typically the way prices work. And did you say 800 or 1,000? About 840 dollars. Dollars. Okay. Yeah. Kaya, give us some more perspective here. Just how much more popular are electric stoves over in Europe and Asia compared to here in North America? Sure. So um, induction stoves as of 2020 were over 35% of the market share for cooktops in Europe. Um, And then in America, they make up less than 10% of the market share. Um, And for some more more color on that, only 3% of people have induction stoves in the U.S., Um, I don't have specific numbers on Asia, but I imagine that it's comparable to that of Europe. Yeah. Any insight as to why Americans haven't adopted electric stoves like other countries? Yeah. So a couple of reasons. Um, I think the first one is, you know, we have been using flame cooking for so long. So there's this element of, you know, sticking to what we know, um, kind of related to our humans' primitive relationship to fire as an essential resource. But um, unlike Europe and Asia, we don't necessarily deal with the same, um, you know, expensive energy, expensive real estate and um, population density. So it makes sense for places, um, you know, Europe and Asia to adopt these fuel efficient cooking methods. Um, European homes tend to be a little bit more insulated, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, makes it not great for running a large gas burner in such a tight space. What are you hearing, Karen, from, from people who are trying to make the switch? 
I'm hearing the honestly the curiosity of, of this cooking experience. Like, is it is it so different and, and faster? And, uh, yeah. Is it faster? And and uh, it's, uh, some of the folks I've talked to who've who've made this switch recently. Yeah, it really is faster. And uh, I, I was connecting with someone, and uh, she talked about how her middle schooler doesn't worry about catching her clothes on fire when she cooks anymore. So there's a lot of curiosity about what this different experience would be. And then there's the practicalities of what's it going to cost, and can I get it in my home? And that gets to the wiring question, and that gets into uh, are there rebates, when are they coming? Uh, but certainly a lot of interest in both the experience of cooking with this, how is it different, the, 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 the major barriers – are my pots and pans going to work? Because you have to have <laughs> certain kinds of pots and pans. That and is the, true. The shorthand test is take a magnet and stick it on your pot. If it sticks, it'll work on induction. Oh gosh, I, I bet none of my pots would work. Cast iron works. Stainless okay. steel yeah. works. So a lot of a lot of them, but aluminum doesn't. Copper doesn't. So when you start to explore this as a purchase, it, it's a part of your daily experience cooking. So you know what does it mean for the pots and pans that you use? Well, the magnet test. Mm, very good. Well, Kaya, you talked to a big proponent of the induction method for your story. What did Detroit chef Jonathan Kung say to you? So he was kind of blown away by um, the the control that you have over it. So he told me that he, um, you know, he discovered that 190 degrees was the best temperature for poaching chicken. And so now he just, you know, he knows that automatically. And that's something he wouldn't necessarily be able to do on a, on a, uh, on a gas stove. And he, he thinks the control is kind of is everything. He mm-hmm. he described it as being insane, which it se- it seems pretty insane. <laughs> you know, professional kitchens they're notoriously hot places to work, hot and sweaty. Did did he have anything to say about how cooking over induction rather than gas can provide an alternative there? Oh yeah, he he did mention you know like. Um, because the heat happens in the pan itself, if you're only using you know one part of the stove, the other part won't actually get hot. So that's definitely um, a big incentive, too. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we are talking all about induction stoves with Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert and Kaya Himmelman, who's a reporter for Grid. So on the flip side, not everybody is into induction stoves. I want to play a clip from Sarah Stegner, who's a chef at Prairie Grass Cafe. It's not an easy thing for a restaurateur to approach. The familiarity with the technology is just not there. So I think that's something that we really need to to work on. And um, maybe there needs to be more of an educational campaign behind it before this is even brought up. Also, there's some restaurants where cooking techniques on open flame, you just can't do without. Like a barbecue restaurant, I don't know how they would do it um, powered by electricity. I just... I'm not sure that, you know, that that makes a lot of sense. And the idea of converting a restaurant just fiscally, just how are you going to do that it is financially, it would just shut restaurants down. This may be the right thing for the environment, but we have a lot to work out between now and then. So I see you listening intently there, Karen. I mean, this is this is a great point. There's, there's a ton of new technology Electric cars, induction stoves, heat pumps, all of which you've talked about with us here on Reset. So what efforts have you seen to do the education component? Yeah, it, it, she has some incredibly important points for any time there's a new technology. Uh, 
and part of it is that that cost. Retrofitting versus starting with the technology are very different cost points. And so if you've already got all of your equipment and it's still working, that's a different economic choice mm-hmm. than if you're putting it in new for the first time. So it's always easier when you're putting it in new for the first time. But this broad question of education has been incredibly interesting. And it's as we've looked at more and more questions about this technology, I've seen more and more interviews and stories actually with chefs because that's the the forefront of what is cooking like and how could cooking work. And seeing different kinds of foods and different kinds of chefs, and the conversation that I made about you know the precision of 190 degrees, um, knowing that different kinds of food can be prepared and sometimes even prepared better uh, on an induction is incredibly important to that broad education, that broad awareness. But there are going to be questions. I think the barbecue question is an incredibly important one. I've heard similar questions <clears throat> about food cooked in a wok when you think about flame on the surface. Mm-hmm. So understanding what the different needs are and then who has addressed that need is part of a broader question anytime there's a, a switch in a technology. You know, similarly about electric vehicles, where do you charge it? How does it actually right. work? There's always going to be that. And that's an incredibly important thing to remember is just because a technology exists doesn't mean it, it can exist nicely in my life unless I actually know how the economics are going to work and what my daily experience will be. And so there, I think that we'll see a lot more of the stories of the real practicalities of using these different technologies mm-hmm. as we start to see more and more economic incentives. But the, the fact that there are rebates coming, lots of people will be able to try it in right. a way that they wouldn't have Which otherwise. is why I like this emphasis too on like if, you, if, if you're into your gas stove, if that's your thing, I mean, you can keep it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's all the regulation, again, is about the potential future or it's in new construction or it's in future for gas stoves. But also you know, get the information. It, it's been really interesting to, to see some of the coverage of folks who just from an experience standpoint discovered that they, they actually kind of like the electric better because of the safety or the, or the precision uh, or the heat around the stove. So there are lots of experience elements. And so if you take the, you know, the why is it happening away and you look at what's the experience, that's a great way for an individual to get to make a choice. What more would you like to see? As we look at the, at the induction, I think what we'll get, we'll get much more interesting is when we start to see prices at parity, not just at this, at this little bit of a price premium. So the incentives are going to be incredibly important. And I think as the market starts to expand, essentially just seeing more examples, more choice, and the, the backdrop of what does a kitchen look like, to start to see that visual of the flat surface. One of the, the really practical standpoints that I, that I really enjoy is I've heard people say, well, it's just so much easier to clean. <laughs> it's just a flat surface. Yeah. That stuff matters day to I love to day. that. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of the, the practicality of things, Kaya, apparently certain techniques um, can't be done over induction, like tilting the pan to, to whisk sauces like beurre blanc. Did you hear any chefs mention anything like that? with someone, if you, you know, lift the, the pan and the pan's no longer on the surface, um, the heat will no longer be there. So it is limited in that way. And I, I suppose that's something that, um, you know, if chefs adopt this, they'll have to contend with. But that, that's certainly, you know, a real concern and can be limited. Well, I mean, to that end, what do you think is the likelihood that induction stoves are going to really take off in the U.S.? Um, you know, I think it might it might be a while till it happens, um, you know, in a real way. But it, it was interesting, even, you know, reporting on this story, I was sort of sold. I have a gas stove and hearing these chefs and these people talk about their induction stoves. I was like, this sounds amazing. I didn't know anything about, you know, induction stoves until I uh, reported the story out. So it, it does, it makes sense when you think about it from a, a safety standpoint and the, the precision element seems, um, seems very appealing. So 
I guess we'll see. But there seems to be some um, appeal for sure. That is Kaya Himmelman, who's a reporter at Grid, and Karen Weigert, Reset Sustainability contributor. Thank you both. This episode of Reset was produced by Linnea Dominic, and it was edited by Andrew Merriweather. Get more stories on sustainability in Chicago and the world by subscribing to the Reset podcast. That'll do it for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Talk to you this afternoon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.